The book of Matthew, we're back in chapter 8 this week. Uh, It's been a few weeks, obviously, since we've been here. So um, just kind of get caught up. The last time uh, we were together, we were looking at Jesus, who had just performed some incredible miracles. He had just performed three incredible physical healings. Now, the the healings were amazing, but maybe even more, uh, perhaps more significant, was who he healed Uh, In a religious culture that valued social status and gender and race, Jesus turned all of that on its head as he healed and as he ministered to the people who were most marginalized in that society, the ones that were looked down upon the most. First, he healed a leper. Now, he didn't just heal the leper. He actually put his hands on the leper. This was an extremely contagious disease. Uh, If you had it, it was a death sentence. You were literally a dead man walking if you contracted leprosy. And it started underneath the surface, started underneath the skin where it couldn't be seen. And it would attack the nerves in your body to the point where it would kill them off and you couldn't feel. You would lose your feeling in your extremities. And it wasn't the disease itself that would actually kill you. It was the consequences of not being able to feel pain. So you could, you know, break your finger or you could cut yourself and you wouldn't even know it until you saw it. And so a lot of times these people were losing digits just because they didn't know that they had hurt themselves. And the law said that they had to live outside of town. They were ostracized, couldn't come near the city. If they did have to come in town for any reason, they couldn't come within 150 feet of a crowd. And if you had to come in, you had to yell out at the top of your voice. You had to yell out, unclean, unclean. Can you imagine as you're approaching, you have to yell out that you yourself are unclean. And they had to wear raggedy clothes and let their hair hang down. It was just a terrible, terrible disease. Um, And now, God had given Moses specific instructions as to what to do if somebody had become cleansed from leprosy. But in the 1,500 years or so that that had been on the books, nobody, no Jewish person had ever been cleansed from leprosy. Why is that? Well, we talked about how leprosy in the scriptures is a very graphic illustration of sin and what it does to us spiritually. Starts underneath the surface, starts in our secret lives. And it's a disease that all of us have, and nothing that we can do in our flesh, nothing we can do in our own power, can cure it. It's a death sentence spiritually. And if that sin isn't dealt with, then it begins to spread throughout every part of our life, and we will become calloused. We become hard-hearted to the point where we can't feel the conviction and the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And um, there is no cure For leprosy in that day, there's no cure for sin until the Messiah showed up. Until the Messiah showed up, there was no cleansing from leprosy. There was no cleansing from sin. It's pretty amazing, that picture of leprosy, how bad it was. And Jesus comes on the scene, and he starts curing people. And this leper had heard about Jesus. He had heard about the miracles. He had the faith to believe that Jesus could heal him, but he would not have received from Jesus if he hadn't approached him boldly. He approached him boldly, but he requested Humbly, that's an important distinction because lots of times we hear about boldly approaching the throne room of grace, but we don't always hear about asking humbly. Some people carry that into approaching boldly and asking boldly, but we don't command God and we don't demand things from him, but we request humbly. We have access to God through Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, but we do it humbly. We pray for your will to be done. Demanding or commanding things from God is my will be done. But we want his will to be done. 
Then Jesus did the unthinkable and he touched him. This man who perhaps hadn't been touched in years, maybe even decades, Jesus touched him. Elijah was talking yesterday. We had the opportunity to talk to Devin and she said, you know, for nine weeks, he's not going to get hugged. <laughs> we're kind of a physical family, you know, so we're not. <laughs> we could be more so. Elena shakes her head. I'm hugging you after church. <laughs> hugging, a big deal. Um, he wasn't going to be touched, but Jesus touches him. And not only did he heal him physically, he restored him to community. So now he's part of society again. Next, Jesus goes into town and he heals the servant of a centurion, a Roman soldier. And the people had just seen this incredible miracle and they probably wanted to see more, but not for this guy, not for a Roman centurion, not for their oppressor. People were probably thinking, Jesus, your kingdom is so much bigger than we thought it was, but it can include this guy, not people like this, our enemy And this man of authority, this guy that ran everything in that area, recognizes the divine authority in Jesus and places himself humbly before the Lord. Now, the Jewish leaders came to Jesus and they said, this man is worthy to have you do this for him because he loves our nation and he built our synagogue. He is worthy to have you do this for him. But he quickly says, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy to even have you come in my house. Just simply speak the word and it'll be done. Like I command men That's what I do. You command sickness and disease and demons to flee. That's never been done. I have never seen that before. I simply command men. You command disease and all of this stuff to flee. You are the real authority. And Jesus is blown away. And he's like, I haven't seen faith like this in the entire country of Israel. People would have been scratching their heads. Wait a minute, Jesus. (laughs) We're the chosen people. Like, we have the credentials. We're children of Abraham. What do you mean this Gentile has more faith than anybody in Israel? But Jesus isn't concerned about your family tree. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. He wants relationships, not your heritage. Lastly, he goes to Simon Peter's house. He goes to Simon's house where Simon's mom is in Capernaum, and she has a really bad fever, and all he does is just walk up and touch her hand, and the fever flees right? That is significant too. And that's something like a big deal. I mean, he heals a leper. Nobody's ever seen that happen before. And then it's kind of jaw dropping that he would heal this Roman centurion servant. So why is it a big deal that he healed Simon's mom? Well, she was a second class citizen, basically. In that society, they looked down on slaves. They looked down on Gentiles and women. And Jesus goes in and heals her. But there's something even more significant in that because it tells us that they're in Capernaum. But Peter's not from Capernaum. He's from Bethsaida. Bethsaida, which means the house of fishing. That's a good place to live if you're a fisherman, right? But it says he's in Capernaum. He had moved his house, he had moved his family to where Jesus was. Jesus said, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And Simon's like, I don't know what that means, but I'm in. That sounds great. Let's do it. And so he cuts ties with his old life and moves to be where Jesus is. It was costly for Peter. It cost him something. It cost him something real. He quit his job. He became very financially insecure to follow Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the cost of discipleship. All right, chapter 8, we're going to do verses 18 through 22 today, the cost of following Jesus. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. 
Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, at first reading, we may think, Jesus, (laughs) why aren't you just excited that these guys want to follow you? Like, why aren't you just welcoming them with open arms? This is a good deal. They want to follow you. They're making a profession. In John's Gospel in chapter 2, we read that now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he knew no one needed to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What does that mean? People were amazed at the miracles. They were impressed at his teachings. They had an emotional, spiritual high based on what they had seen. But Jesus knows us, right? He's God. He knows us. He knows our hearts can be fickle. And that broadly speaking, human nature, our loyalties and our affinities can change with the wind. And we see that all the time. And they did. You may have seen an advertising campaign that's been going on nationally uh, called He Gets Us. He gets us. That's true. He does. That's the reason why he became a man, to relate to us. He gets it. People were in awe at the wonders, but they missed the other side of this reality that through all of the miracles, Jesus was participating in our suffering. He was taking in our pain. That's something I think we miss because when he heals people, that's exciting. But the other side of that is Jesus is entering into our suffering. That's the last verse that Matthew wrote, verse 17, where we left off last time. And this comes out of Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Some translations say he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. In the same passage, it says that Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Now that kind of makes me scratch my head because it tells us that he was anointed with the oil of gladness beyond all of his companions. Jesus was fun to be around. Okay, he wasn't moping around. So what does it mean when it says that he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief because of the very things that people were in awe of, the miracles. He was bearing our sicknesses. He was entering into that pain with those people before he healed them. Jesus basically banished sickness and disease in Israel during his ministry. Everybody that came to him, he healed. Everywhere he went, he was banishing sickness and disease. And that's what they believed that the Messiah was going to do when he walked on the scene. And yet... Lots of people still didn't believe in him. It's kind of weird. Why? Because human hearts are easily swayed. Jesus was telling the multitudes, if you are sick, if you're hurting, come to me and I'll make you whole. I will bear your grief. I'll bear your sorrows. I'll banish sickness. But for those of you who are standing around just watching the show, I know what's going on in your heart. Jesus is looking for disciples, not just fans. People ask the question, why don't we see more miracles today? Like, wouldn't that be great? If lots of miracles were happening, wouldn't that be good for the church? Lots of people, the church would be growing if they saw lots of miracles today. But that's not what happened in Jesus' day. And we're way more entertained than they were. Most of the times when people see miracles, it only creates a desire or an appetite to see or experience more miracles. Okay, not to get the one who is actually performing the miracles. And Jesus knows this. 
we need to be careful that we're not just after the blessing, but we're after the source. Sometimes we ask for the blessing, but we don't always ask for the source. The blessing is actually a byproduct of being a disciple. If you're walking with the Lord, then you're under the spout where the blessings come out, basically, (laughs) if you're with him. Most people want the outcome, but they don't want the process. They want the popularity, they want, you know, the association, but they don't want the commitment. Uh, I found this video as I was putting this together, and I uh, found out Laura's going to play it for us. But you guys might remember this, only a minute long, but go ahead and play it. remember that commercial from when we were younger? I used to watch that when I was a kid and I was like, yes, where do I sign up? Take me to the station right now. I'm ready. I want the sword, right? That's what I want. Well, lots of young men saw that commercial, right? And they were excited about it, but ultimately didn't take on the commitment of what it took to become a Marine. That makes sense. They wanted that incredible sword, but they didn't want boot camp. Okay. Jesus is calling his disciples to boot camp. That's what he's calling us to. It's not a life of luxury. It's a life of sacrifice. So what keeps people from genuine discipleship, from following him closely? There are two barriers that we see here in these passages, and it's really visible in our culture today. And the first barrier is the barrier of personal comfort. The barrier of personal comfort. The scribe said, teacher, this is amazing. This is something like any, I've, anything I've ever seen before. I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus didn't criticize him. He didn't call into question his sincerity. He simply told him a fact. Look, even animals have some place to go at the end of the day, but I, I got nothing. I have no earthly attachments. I have no belongings. I have nowhere to lay my head. This isn't going to be um, a, a luxury trip. This is going to be a life of sacrifice. I don't seek my own honor. I'm just a wandering rabbi. So if you follow me, you're going to have to give it all up. Now, this first man's a little shocking because whenever we hear about the scribes, like they're lumped in with the Pharisees, okay? Almost every single time we hear about a scribe, it goes along with the Pharisees. Jesus was constantly lumping them together when he was talking about hypocrisy, And when we get to Matthew 23, this is towards the end of Jesus's ministry. He is pronouncing what he calls the seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. In his final warning to the religious elite, he puts them both in the same camp. He's like, you're both phonies, both of you. You guys are all religious, but underneath, inside your hearts, you guys are fakes. So this particular scribe would have been breaking with the majority of his fellow scribes if he had become a dedicated disciple This would have been a huge deal. This would have been a huge win for Jesus, right, humanly speaking. I mean, how cool would it have been to have had a professor in the group, 
right? That would have said a lot to the religious elite to have had someone from academia in the circle. But unlike many churches and Christian organizations today who are very eager to embrace any type of personality who professes to be a Christian, Jesus knew that a strong profession does not necessarily mean a strong commitment. He knew what was in men's hearts, and we can learn a valuable lesson from that. Uh, One of the traps that the Christian uh, church falls into, especially here in America, is to try to find some secular star of some kind who says they believe in Jesus. And when we find that cultural icon that starts talking about Jesus, we get really excited and we put them up on a pedestal and kind of tell the world, like, look, we're cool. Okay, Kanye says he believes in Jesus. And we kind of use that to try to legitimize our faith to the world. It's kind of a strange thing. I read a story when we were out, when we were gone, um, that really blew my mind. There is a song that has flown up the Christian music charts, okay? And it recently just became number one on iTunes. And it's a song called Use This Gospel. I don't know if you've heard of that song, Use This Gospel. It's very popular right now, especially in Christian circles. This song is produced, performed by secular artists like Dr. Dre and Kanye West, Eminem, and a guy named DJ Khaled. Went to number one on iTunes. Laura's laughing at me. I looked it up if I said his name right. That is how you say it. (laughs) Now, if you haven't heard of these guys, they are not known for their wholesome personalities, okay? Mostly known for parental warning labels, okay? And these guys have sung a Christian song. They were talking about Jesus, and people got all excited because these cultural icons mention Jesus' name, and they feel like it somehow legitimizes their faith. There's a brief association, and people get excited. Um, Not necessarily because they might be saved, but because they're thinking, wouldn't it be awesome if they were on the team? Like if they were one of us, how cool would that be? And people use things of the world to try to prop up their faith. But we need to be very careful with that because we don't need the world, especially the rich and the famous and the comfortable, to try to prop up our faith. You know what a prophet's job was in the Old Testament? A prophet's job in speaking for God was to comfort the afflicted, but to afflict the comfortable. That was the prophet's job. Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Comfortable people don't like to be afflicted. That's why they killed the prophets. They didn't want to hear it. We don't want to hear about righteousness and holiness and God's standards. We want to hear about love and mercy and forgiveness. And so they killed him. Just use wisdom. When we see those type of things happen in the culture, people profess Jesus. That's fantastic. But as we learned about a few weeks ago, we are to identify and then observe. Identify those people and then observe their lives. Look for repentance. Look for fruit in their lives. That's what Jesus is really looking for. Those are what followers look like. Okay, the scribes were some of the most educated people in that culture. These were the teachers in Israel. They didn't follow other people, okay? Especially not teachers that didn't have credentials. Remember when Jesus was in his hometown and he went to the synagogue and they let him teach. And people, after they heard him teach, they were like, man, this is impressive. And then one of the guys there said, wait a minute, isn't this Mary and Joseph's son? Like, doesn't Mary still live here? Aren't all his brothers and sisters here? Who is this guy? He's not educated. And it says they became offended by him. They became offended by him. He didn't have any rabbinic resume. 
If you really wanted to get ahead, uh, you would associate yourself with the best teachers, with the best teachers you could find. When Paul is listing out his resume, he specifically lists, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. This was a teacher who was one of the best teachers in all of Israel. And he tells us at the top of his resume, I sat with this guy. My association with this teacher was like going to an Ivy League school, if you can say it that way. And this scribe was so taken with Jesus that he blurts out, I'll be a follower, I'll go with you. And Jesus let him know, the life I live isn't easy. It's not really a life that's honored by a lot of people. It's going to be costly. There's a fantastic book if you're looking for material to read, um, and I highly recommend it. It's by Diedrich Bonhoeffer, and the title of the book is literally called The Cost of Discipleship. And in it, he writes about the church's role and our responsibility in the secular world. He was a pastor, teacher, uh, scholar in that uh, during the World War II era, and with a lot of other pastors and teachers, they led a kind of an underground rebellion against the Nazis, against Hitler. And he knew about the cost of discipleship. And eventually he was arrested and he was executed for his faith and for his resistance against the Nazi regime. But in his book, he says this, he talks about the road that Jesus travels. He says, and if we answer the call to discipleship, where will that lead us? What decisions and partings will it demand? To answer this question, we shall have to go to him, for only he knows the answer. Only Jesus Christ, who bids us to follow him, knows the journey's end. But we do know that it will be a road of boundless mercy. Discipleship means joy. Not a road of boundless comfort. Not a road of boundless prosperity but what we truly need, which is mercy and grace and forgiveness. Those are the types of things that we can find joy in. Joy in the midst of our sorrows. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus used this term, Son of Man, to describe himself more than any other term because he wanted to identify with us in his humanity. It's used over 80 times in the Gospels. And it's a prophetic term that's first used in the book of Daniel, but Jesus uses it over and over to identify himself. I am part of human, right? He is fully human, fully man, fully God at the same time. It's a mystery to understand that. But he's saying, I understand your sorrows. I understand your failings and what you um, are pulled to, especially towards earthly things. He knows this. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we do not have a high priest that cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was tested in every way, yet without sin. He was tempted in every way, just like we are even the temptation to have attachments and earthly connections in this life. Um, Okay, so sometimes I talk about the chosen. Uh, Forgive me. It's not the Bible. But there is a scene in one of the episodes, and I thought it was brilliant, where the disciples are looking for him. They can't find him. And he is underneath. It cuts to the scene where he's underneath this cart, and he's helping this guy fix his cart. And the guy is impressed, and he says to Jesus, he's like, you know, you should open up a shop here in town. You do really well. And I thought it was brilliant. Jesus sits up and he kind of has this thought on his, you know, this look on his face and he's like, a shop. Hmm. Like for a brief moment, the thought went through his head. I could enter into this. Society. I could be successful here. I could have an earthly attachment. That pull towards earthly things was real in Jesus, but he was without sin. And he's encouraging us the same thing. He wasn't going to let worldly things get in the way of doing his father's will. So what things in our life keep us from doing the father's will? The truth is, is that there is a cost to discipleship, but there is also a reality of outcome. Cost of discipleship. A lot of people aren't willing to be uncomfortable 
Okay, they don't count the cost. Jesus tells us we need to count the cost. What are we going to do when difficult times arise? Because difficult times are coming. They are already here. Our time is short. It is coming. And you need to make up your mind ahead of time how you're going to react when those situations come into your life. Because if you don't, when you get there, you're going to really struggle and your flesh is going to be strong as it pulls you away from the Lord. There is a cost. We need to count the cost ahead of time. The cost of giving up, indulging our flesh now for a greater reward in heaven. To be sacrificial with our time, with our money, with our talents. If we have a hard time with it inside the church, imagine people outside the church. They don't want to be uncomfortable. They don't want to give things up. And so what we do from time to time um, to justify what I would call passive Christianity is they water down the gospel to make it more palatable to people in the world. What they say is things like, you know, if you come to Jesus, it's going to really make your life easier. Really? Do you feel like your life is easier because you're following Jesus? Jesus said if you truly follow him, the exact opposite would be true. Your life's going to be difficult. There's a cost. There's also a reality of outcome. 10 out of 10 people die. Okay? It's perspective. Our time is short. We're here for a very brief time and then comes eternity. Okay? There's a cost, but it's worth it. Monday, we flew from, uh, Monday, this last Monday, we flew from London to New Jersey. Okay, quite the change from London, New Jersey. About a seven or eight hour flight. Uh, wasn't too bad, um, but it wasn't really comfortable back in coach, okay? Especially when you walk by first class. They, in international flights, they, they pretty much have beds. You know, and TV is very comfortable and they have pancakes. <laughs> I didn't like that, but I'm over it now. <laughs> now, imagine, imagine that after we take off, we get a couple hours away from London, and the pilot calls in the flight attendant, and he says, listen, we have a hole in our fuel tanks. We are losing fuel rapidly. We are not going to make it back to Heathrow. You need to tell everybody, and you need to start passing out parachutes now. And the flight attendant walks out, and she puts a smile on her face. She composes herself, and she gets on the intercom, and she says, ladies and gentlemen, I just wanted to make you aware that we have some lovely parachutes on the plane today. And they're the latest models. And I think that if you want to try one, you'll find that it makes your ride a little easier. You'll enjoy the flight better if you have one of these parachutes. Now, who would like a parachute? And a few people raise their hands, but most people are scratching their heads like, why would we do that? But some people take them and they put them on. And after a while, they figure out that, you know what, this isn't so comfortable. And, and they can't get their tray tables down. And people start to make fun of them because they look kind of strange. And so some people take them off. They're like, forget this. You know, I'm hot and sweaty. This is uncomfortable. I just want to be comfortable. Now imagine another scenario where the pilot calls the flight attendant in and she comes out. She says, everybody listen to me. This is an emergency. We have less than an hour's worth of fuel left in this plane. We are not going to make it back. Who wants a parachute? Everybody's hands are going to go up. Okay. At least most people. Some people might be skeptical and think, I think she might be joking. This might be a drill. But almost everybody else is going to take a parachute. And you know what? They don't care that they're uncomfortable. And they don't care that they can't get their tray table down. And they don't care if some people might be poking fun at them because this parachute is going to save their life. There's a big difference there in how we present the gospel to the world. There is a real cost, but there's a real outcome. You are going to spend eternity somewhere. 
but it's worth it. But sometimes we water down the truth so as not to upset people. Following Jesus isn't going to make your life necessarily more comfortable. Jesus told his disciples, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. And Paul told Timothy, he said, everybody who desires to live a godly life in Jesus Christ is going to face persecution. If you really want to live a godly life in front of other people, they're going to persecute you. But you'll have peace and you'll have joy in the midst of difficult circumstances because this is not your final destination. New Jersey was not our final destination. (laughs) Thank goodness. The world might be crashing around us, but you're standing on the rock. Our faith is not in comfort. It's in the comfortor. All right. When Jesus was his disciples, he was the comforter. But when he was talking about them, uh, talking to them about how I have to go back to the father, but don't be anxious because I'm sending another comforter to you, which is the Holy Spirit. Our savior is our comfort. The Holy Spirit is the comforter, not worldly things. Okay, another barrier to becoming a true disciple is the barrier of personal riches, or the pursuit of personal riches, rather. It says that another of the disciples came to him and said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, something I've been reading the Bible for a long time, and something I never noticed was that it says another one of the disciples. This is not some random person out of the crowd. This is somebody who's been following Jesus at some level for some time. And now he wants to make a bigger commitment, but he has one more thing to do, or so it would seem. Sounds like Jesus is being pretty insensitive. This guy just wants to go bury his father. And Jesus is like, yeah, he's dead. Why don't you let somebody else take care of that? But that's not what's going on here. I must bury my father was a very common figure of speech back then that referred to one's responsibility to their family and to their fathers and to be with them and, you know, kind of help with the family and the family business until they died. That's what this figure of speech meant. Because when he died, guess what? There was an inheritance coming after that. So to say, I must bury my father spoke of, I have a responsibility to him. And, oh, by the way, there's an inheritance coming afterwards. If he chose to walk away from the family and be a committed disciple of Jesus, he probably would have lost the inheritance or would have been reduced in some regard. He would have had to have kissed all that goodbye. So that phrase, I must bury my father, is equivalent to saying, I want to wait until I get my inheritance, Jesus. I want to follow you, but just not yet. I want to serve you, but I have some other things that are really important that I have to do. I know you've placed it on my heart to do this thing, but you know, I have to plan for the future, right? Let's be practical. In Luke's gospel in chapter nine, he reads, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That second part is added in Luke's gospel. You've been following me. You know what you're supposed to do. You know you're supposed to proclaim the kingdom of God and you're supposed to do it now. Don't let the lure of riches keep you from doing his will. This is temporary. What we're going to do is eternal. This life is temporary. What I'm doing is eternal. Now, we don't know who that part-time disciple was, okay? But we know that he didn't become part of the twelve. Now, it may have been part of the 70. Jesus at one point sent out 70 disciples, but even all of them fell away except for the 12. 
like the rich young ruler who walked away sad because Jesus told him, you have to eliminate any earthly attachments. Your biggest problem is your riches. Those are the things that you're trusting in, and you need to trust in me. You need to give it all away and come follow me. And he couldn't do it. It was a barrier towards following Jesus and becoming a disciple. All right, I'm going to talk about The Chosen one more time. There's this brutal scene, last scene in season one, okay? Um, and again, this is not in the Bible, but the way they portrayed it was interesting. And Nicodemus, who's my favorite character, he wanted to follow Jesus. He wanted to be a disciple, but he had too much responsibility. He had too much at stake. He couldn't bring himself to follow him openly. And so there's this scene where Jesus is leaving with his disciples, and Nicodemus is hiding around the corner and he wants to join Jesus, but he can't bring himself to do it. And so he leaves some money at the well where they are and they find it. And Jesus gives him one last opportunity. He says, is there anyone else who wants to join us? And Nicodemus is around the corner just bawling because he knows what he should do, but he doesn't do it. He lets his earthly attachments keep him back. And Jesus says this before they leave. He says, you were so close. Those are chilling words. You were so close. May those words never be said of us that we were so close, but we wouldn't go all in because we wouldn't let go of earthly things. Now, after Jesus' death, Nicodemus did profess openly. He did become an open disciple of Jesus Christ. He didn't care at that point what anybody else said. But it did, he did miss out on being able to walk by his side and serve with him personally. William McDonald writes this about those who wouldn't commit. They left Christ to make a comfortable place for themselves in the world and to spend the rest of their lives hugging the subordinate. C.S. Lewis says, Prosperity can knit a man to this world. He feels that he's finding his place in it when really he is finding, really it's finding his place in him. If we don't have our priorities right, our lives our money, our time, if it's not submitted to the Lord for him to use it as he wants, then it's going to be a barrier to us following him closely. In Luke's gospel, there's actually a third man who comes to Jesus and he says this, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus says to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, again, this seems like a totally reasonable request. Lord, I just want to go home and tell everybody goodbye. But the connotation was that he needed to go back and either get somebody's blessing or get their permission before he could follow Jesus. He was too tethered to his family. And Jesus knew that his faith was weakened because of that. John MacArthur says this, the decision to follow Jesus Christ is the most uniquely personal decision that can be made. It's wonderful when friends and relatives encourage someone to decide for Christ, and it's tragic when they advise against Christ. But whatever the outside influences may be, the commitment is the individual's alone to make. Many people are surprised at who encourages them to follow the Lord's call on their life. And they're very surprised to find out who tries to talk them out of it. One sees the dedication and the commitment and the calling and they encourage to do it. And the other says, look, you're religious. Good for you. That, that's good for you. Just don't get radical. Okay? Don't be fanatical. Let's be pragmatic about this. Be realistic. Jesus' response to this man was no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. What does that mean? Well, when they would plow field, you had to keep your eyes straight ahead because if you look back, your rows, we're going to start doing this, okay? When I was younger, I used to care about my yard. I don't care anymore. 
I know. I used to care about my yard. I have two dogs now. My yard is a mess, so I don't care. But when I was younger, I did care. And I wanted those baseball lines in my yard, right? I wanted them all to be perfect and go in the opposite ways. So I would keep my eyes on the wheel, that front wheel and on the row, right? And I would keep it there. But when I would get to the end, inevitably, my rows still wouldn't be straight. And I figured out sooner or later that you couldn't even look back. You couldn't even look at the front wheel. You had to pick a fixed point in, you know, in the distance and go towards that because it didn't move. And if you focused on that point, your rows would be straight. See where I'm going with this? <laughs> a friend of mine lives way out in the country. And one day he was helping his father-in-law uh, bring in the corn harvest. And he was, you know, in one of those big combines, hadn't done one of these big combines before. And this one was a newer model that had GPS in it. And so the GPS would help you plow a straight row through the field. And literally all you had to do was you had to turn the combine around, get it pointed in this direction, and the GPS would take over and it would, you know, go through the field. Well, he didn't really understand this very well. So at one point he felt like it was getting off track. And so he tried to manually steer it back, but the GPS started fighting against him. And so here he is, you know, wrestling and struggling with the machine. And what he ended up with were some really ugly rows, which his father-in-law had to hear all about from the other farmers in the area. <laughs> Those ugly rows because he was fighting it. If we want to be fit for the kingdom, if we don't want to zigzag our way up to heaven, then we need to keep our eyes fixed on, fixed on him because he doesn't move. He doesn't change. We need to keep our eyes fixed on him and we need to be led by the spirit. Don't fight against his leading. That's how we walk by faith. Jesus told us, I'm going to send you another comforter. He will convict the world of sin, and he will lead you into all righteousness, into all truth. That's what the Holy Spirit does. These men let uh, the, bar the barriers of comfort and the barriers of riches keep them from becoming dedicated disciples. It's a short-sighted lie of the enemy to offer us those things now when we can walk with Jesus and have them for eternity. Okay, He offered Jesus temporary things, bread, rule, what else? If you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Why don't you command these stones to become bread? Jump off the temple so everybody will see that you're the son of God and he saves you. Temporal things. Jesus said, I'm going to have all those things in eternity. Why would I do them now? It's short-sighted to think that we can have those things now. Now, the Lord may not take away the comforts, the money, the relationships, all of those things, anything. But they must be given over to him to do with as he pleases. They have to be submitted to him. Otherwise, he's not Lord in your life, regardless of how much you profess. No matter how you profess your allegiance to him, if they're not submitted to him, then it's not real discipleship. And we haven't counted the cost. It's a tough message. It's not a uh, comfortable message, right? There's a cost to discipleship. I would highly encourage all of us to take stock of our lives spiritually and see where we are. Have we made the commitment, not just now, not just coming to church or tithing, all of those things are good and they're part of the Christian walk, but have we made up our minds that whatever comes in the future, whatever comes ahead, we're going to face it with faith, we're going to be led by the Spirit, we've counted the cost, whatever it is, we're going to follow him. We're not going to let the things of this world become barriers to becoming disciples. Amen.